Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. Today we're cracking the code of the 5th Eon Productions James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice, and looking to see where there are connections and relationships with other movies and other events, and at closely analyzing the title song. So let's go. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. I'm Vicky Hodges. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. So let's get cracking on You Only Live Twice and see how Bond, the writers, and the producers pull this off. First of all, the title comes directly from Ian Fleming's novel, You Only Live Twice, published March 26, 1964. The last Fleming novel published while he was alive. Fleming died August 12, 1964. So it was written after Dr. No, the movie, was released. And in the novel, we learn of James Bond's Scottish roots. And his father was Scottish Andrew Bond from Glencoe. This is Fleming's nod to Sean Connery. But the title comes specifically from the pages of Fleming's novel. I went back and looked. All right, in our version of the book, it's on page 87. While Tanaka and Bond are speaking of a famous Japanese poet who wrote haikus, Tanaka asks Bond to write one. And Bond, after much thought, writes, You only live twice. Once when you were born, and once when you look death in the face. Ah, while it was an admirable attempt at a haiku, which, by the way, only has 17 syllables in the form, the first line having five, the second having seven, and the third having five, Bond did not write a haiku. (laughs) Tanaka pointed that out and says, "Eh, maybe you were thinking about your mission. So Bond gave it a good go. Anyway, that's where it comes from. Okay, we'll start with the pre-title sequence, which opens with a scene that is a modernised version of what we saw in the 1939 movie Q Planes, also known as Clouds Over Europe. In You Only Live Twice, we see a United States space capsule that is engulfed by another spacecraft, incapacitating it and its communication ability in the process. The crew is captured and the scene is set for the mission. Who is responsible for this international incident? Eventually, James Bond rescues the crew later in the movie. Eon Productions recycled this trope in their 1977 James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. In this movie, Stromberg's ship, the Liparus, swallows up the HMS Ranger and the Soviet Potemkin submarines. In the 1939 movie Q-Planes, an organisation assumed to be the Germans incapacitates planes and loads them onto their ship. We later see Tony McVeigh rescuing the crew and a fight ensues. We have a couple of podcasts on Q-Planes. Now, the purpose of them stealing the planes in Q-Planes is to steal technology. In You Only Live Twice, it is to cause tension between the US and the Russians and have this tension escalate to a war between the two countries. Now, next, we see Bond in bed with a Chinese woman. It is a fold into the wall bed. She arises, flips the bed into the wall with Bond in it, opens the door, and gunmen come in and riddle the bottom of the bed with bullets. Of course, we are led to believe that Bond is dead and the police come in. Yeah, another movie where it seems like they kill Bond at the beginning of it. Yeah, that's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, I I like the way it's done, though. I love it. This is one of my favorite pre-titled sequences. So on a video call a couple of months ago honoring Sean Connery's work with Stephen J. Rubin, author of the James Bond movie encyclopedia, and Lee Pfeiffer, the author of The Essential James Bond and The Incredible World of 007, Lee said... 
you see bullet holes in the bottom of the bed. But wait, aren't they shooting blanks? Because we find out later that all this was a setup to look like Bond is dead. So I thought this is a brilliant point because I've watched this thing a hundred times and I'm, I never thought that. So how'd the holes get there? And he said, it's obvious that the Chinese woman and the gunman and the British agents were all part of this plan. So why is this a big spectacle anyway? <laughs> it's like <laughs> all the people who see him dead are already know this part of the deal. So it, it was well, great. I love how you see the blood, but there's no bullet holes in Bond. Yeah, yeah. But this is, this is a great point. I love it. All right, so now we get onto the title sequence, which to me, the most intriguing part of the movie is the title song. I love the title song to this thing ah. and how it fits or doesn't fit into James Bond's life. Yeah, you know, You Only Live Twice is a great song and I like it a lot. And what I want to look at is the lyrics and see how they compare to what really happens in the movie or what it means to Bond and Bond's life and what we know of Bond. So we're going to go through the lines of You Only Live Twice. Now, Nancy Sinatra sang this version of the song. So we're going to talk about this version of the song, the official title song, You Only Live Twice. So it starts off, You Only Live Twice, or so it seems, one life for yourself and one for your dreams. So, all right, let's look at this for Bond. For Bond, he lives his professional life as a spy and then his dream life, enjoying beluga caviar, Dom Perignon, women, whatever, in a different kind of life. So this line is a very good line, not only not only for this movie, but in general for Bond. So let's look at the next set of lines. You drift through the years and life seems tame till one dream appears and love is its name. Okay, all right, for Bond, sorry, I'm sorry. There is nothing tame about Bond's life, his job, and no drifting through the years. Drifting always implies passiveness, like, oh, he's kind of drifting through life. That's never a compliment. So this doesn't seem to be a good word here, drifting through the year. They may fly by maybe quickly for Bond, but drifting, no, nah, I don't think so. And tame, <laughs> what about Bond's life is tame? I would rather have had the line be this, and I'm willing to write lines for you guys if you want. <laughs> we'll sign you up, Dan. All right, here's my line. You push. Wait, wait. Is Barbara, are you listening? Yeah. Dan's going to write some music for you. And Michael, you know, you can help out with this too, Michael G. Wilson. <laughs> yeah. You push through the years not knowing who to blame. That's better than you drift through the years and life seems tame. F plug this in. You push through the years not knowing who to blame. This makes sense to Bond because he doesn't know, should I blame myself for the way I am? For the, I can't live, I can't balance my dream life, my real life. This is the line. Michael and Barbara, please write that and in And you there. think I get esoteric with some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like the till one dream appears line. And let's face it, Bond, though he avoids love, sometimes love does appear. And this is a dream for him. So that's a good line. All right, let's move on. And love is a stranger who will beckon you on. I was going to sing it. That would be bad. And no, love is a stranger. We won't sing anymore. <laughs> and love is a stranger who will beckon you on. Don't think of the danger or the stranger is gone. For Bond, love is a stranger. But when he's falling for it, it does beckon him further. Vesper Lynn, Tracy DiVincenzo. We've seen it before. Madeline Swan. Yeah, Madeline Swan now. And at the moment, living in the dream, you can't think of the danger of love or this stranger love will leave. Good Bond lines. There's danger everywhere, yes, 
But in his dream life, maybe, maybe he can try to avoid that. So I like that set of lines. No changes there, Barbara or Michael. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan. <laughs> Make sure you, they hear what, what you like, too. This dream is for you, so pay the price. Make one dream come true. You only live twice. Uh, for Bond, the dream has been his a couple of times, like we've mentioned. And maybe now with, with Swan, we'll find out. So make that dream come true in one life. The other of his spying, espionage, death, and mayhem all around him, nah, that's not happening there. So that's, that's good. So I like these lines too, good. For Bond and for all of us, there's a price to everything we do. There's an opportunity gained or an opportunity lost in virtually anything we do in life. So yes, if the dream is for Bond, he has to pay the price. Hard to balance the dream life with his life of espionage. That is tough. So the advice here to Bond is to make one dream come true because he only lived twice. The dream he has some control over. His work, no, not really, unless he quits, which we've seen him do a number of times in the movies. <laughs> Yeah. Just when he thought he was out, they pulled him back in. <laughs> so anyway, the, the, a couple of the lines repeat again. So overall, the lyrics are good for a Bond film, but there's really a story behind this title song. So there's an article by mi6-hq.com made 2017 for the 50th anniversary of this movie, and it's titled You Only Sing Twice. Good title for what you're going to talk about. Originally, they say Julie Rogers is who they wanted to sing this song, not Nancy Sinatra. And that indeed, the British singer did record a version in 1967. It's often called the demo version. So you could look that up on YouTube. But it was indeed the full song recorded and presented to the producers. And the producers nixed the song for a variety of reasons. They say only two lines were kept from the original Julie Rogers' version, you only live twice and you'll pay the price. And what I liked about the original song is it really has an Asian influence to the music, which sadly disappears in the Nancy Sinatra version. And because Cubby Broccoli knew Frank Sinatra, he called him to do the song. And Frank said, no, <laughs> I don't want to do it. Try my daughter, she's pretty good. So they got Nancy. Now, Nancy had a very narrow vocal range. And so they tried to record this song a number of times. I think it was like 12 times. And they finally pieced together pieces from all different 12 recordings to make the final song, which is what we have uh, to get it right. So, so the Julie Rogers version, I love. The song has this Asian influence in the music and it's just terrific, actually. Neither the music nor the lyrics are the same now, except a couple of lines. I like it better than the Nancy Sinatra version. There's a link to the original version on our website in the episode notes. Check it out, listen to it a couple of times, and we think you'll like it too. Both versions are written by John Barry and Leslie Brickus. Quickly, here are the lyrics to the original You Only Live Twice song, which lyrics are pretty damn good. Right, you only live twice, no more than twice, and each life you live, you're playing with dice. That's perfect for Bond, right? Playing with dice, casinos, everything else, and the gamble of a dice. Beautiful line. The first game is love, beware it's nice. The second is death, whose cold charms entice you. You gamble with danger, you gamble with love. Each one a stranger in a black velvet glove. Nice line, perfect, kind of disguised, smooth, clean, fooling you. And if you lose, you'll pay the price. 
Good luck with the dice. You only live twice. And then it repeats. I love those lyrics. I think the original song with the Asian influence and the lyrics, terrific. For me, You Only Live Twice is my favorite of all the Bond songs. It's so melodic and it fits perfectly with the location in the film. And the soundtrack is a favorite of mine behind that of Honor Majesty's Secret Service too. This episode is sponsored in part by SpyCoffees.com, a U.S.-based veteran-owned small business. If you are a coffee drinker, check them out. Our listeners get a 20% discount when they use the coupon code SPYNAV at checkout. That's S-P-Y-N-A-V. Get yours today at SpyCoffees.com. Okay, so back to the beginning of the movie, after the title sequence. There's a fake burial at sea that happens right after the title sequence. It has appeared to make us believe that James Bond is dead, and to anyone watching, and there's a guy watching, Mm -hmm. thinks that Bond is dead. It's really one of my favorite opening scenes of any Bond movie. It's well done, all of it. And I love the line from Bond. Request permission to come aboard, sir. Permission granted. Thank you. I mean, every time I see that, that cracks me up because we know Bond always follows the rules. (laughs) We've seen fake funerals in numerous spy movies. The James Bond movie that came out before this one, Thunderball, opens with a fake funeral for Jacques Beauvoir in its pre-title sequence. Check out our two-part podcast on Thunderball if you want to hear our analysis of that one. And Vicky, didn't you just release on your podcast channel something about this scene? Yes, on my uh, YouTube channel of The Bond Room Unlocked, I've just taken a look at the stretch limo that features in this Thunderball sequence. Yeah, what was the name of that again? The Bond Room Unlocked. Fantastic. Yeah, cool. It's a fun channel. Check it out. And before you only live twice, the 1936 movie Secret Agent opens with a fake funeral for an agent named Ashington. And we have a podcast on Secret Agent as well. You can find that on our website, spymovienavigator.com. And the links will be in the episode notes as well. For those of you watching the video, just click on that card. So then Bond goes to a sumo wrestling match at a Tokyo sumo hall. This was a real sumo hall, which has been replaced with a more modern facility. And it was really a great scene for a few reasons. The first reason was it actually had some well-known sumo wrestlers in it. Sedano Yama Shinmatsu was a popular sumo wrestler at the time. He's the one who gives Bond the ticket in the changing room. He was the 50th Yokozuna which is the highest rank in Japanese sumo wrestling. Even though the sumo wrestling we saw was staged for the movie and wasn't a real tournament, they used the real facility, and again, we get a dose of realism of the Japanese culture, which I love how they interweave that through this movie. The sumo hall is one of the many places where they show this culture, and they put a good effort in throughout the movie to show the culture where they could. We have to remember that this was 1967, and Japan was an exotic location for most North Americans and Europeans which was the largest James Bond audience. Bringing forth the Japanese culture not only allowed Ian Fleming in the novel and Eon Productions in the movie to show their respect to the Japanese, but it also educated their audience with things they may not have seen before. These types of scenes bring some realism, but they don't overdo it. And I love the way they did that. Now, if they didn't try to make Bond look Japanese, which we'll talk about later, I would have been much happier. This is one of the things they took from the Fleming book but I think they missed the execution on how they bond James Bond. I like how they infused the movie with the Japanese culture, as you're talking about, Tom. In the sumo wrestler scene you mentioned, wedding scene, the bathhouse scene, the funeral scene, the fishing village, all really great, intriguing, enlightening, and entertaining and infusing us with the Japanese culture, which is why I wish they would have kept 
the original Julie Rogers song. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I could just imagine in 1967, the use of these locations and the customs and the cultures were relatively, relatively unknown to the Payne audience, so it was full of mystery and mystique. Yeah, I just love it. And I've been to Japan once. I would love to go back because it is very different mm. than what we have here in North America or where I've been in Europe. And so I love the fact this movie gave us some of that feel. Yeah. All right, then we see Aki take Bond to Henderson's, and she's driving a convertible Toyota 2000 GT, which debuted for this movie. We actually see it a few times. Mm. They, and the fun part here is they had to make the car a convertible because Sean Connery and his body double were too big and wouldn't fit under the top of the car <laughs> in the regular coupe version of this thing. It was also supposedly the first convertible in Japan, so it generated a lot of buzz there. Toyota only made two of the convertibles of the 2000 GT, both for You Only Live Twice. Yeah, so on this thing, I think two things. One is a spy should never have a convertible because, I mean, that's dangerous, right? That's a bad idea. And number two, if you look closely, you freeze frame it when you're watching that scene when they're in the car, when Aki and Bond are in the car. Look at the top corners of the windshield, and you'll see that it's, they're a little rough. And you can tell that they did something to the car there. And it's not a smooth line. So you could see that they, they actually did modify the car in there. But it's I cool. love this car. I, I've got to say, I, I love this car. This is my second favorite car behind the Aston Martin. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> it was very feminine and very Aki, although I will say that Aki always seemed to arrive in the nick of time. How did she know that Bond was needing help? She just comes around the roundabout and she appears. That one always sort of flummoxes me every time I watch the film. She's so well-trained. <laughs> the Deco Henderson character was based on Ian Fleming's friend, Australian journalist Richard Hughes. Hughes introduced Fleming to Turao Tiger Saito when Hughes and Saito took Fleming around Japan as Fleming was researching the book. In the book, Henderson doesn't die. This was the first James Bond movie to diverge from the novel as much as it did. This was due in part to the fact that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was written first, so Tracy died before this novel was written. These movies came out in reverse order. In the movie, Henderson gets killed just as he's about to tell Bond what's up. Well, where have we seen that before? Well, it's actually a fairly common trope in movies. In fact, so much that the person dying mid-sentence is used as a cliché in this Broadway musical called A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine. The show has a song called I Love a Film Cliché, and one of the clichés they talk about is this dying mid-sentence. Mm -hmm. And when I re-watched this movie before we did this podcast, I saw that happen, and it instantly brought me to that song from that musical. Yeah, and it's always the same thing if they say, well, meet me there at 10 o'clock. And by 10 o'clock, the guy's dead. Of course, it, it, never, it always happens. So they should never delay speaking whatever they have to speak. <laughs> Although Henderson wasn't delaying there. He just got it. So when Bond goes to Osato Chemical the first time, he gets into a fight with an Asian henchman. To me, this fight brought me back to the fight with Ajab in Goldfinger. Did you know that the henchman was none other than actor, wrestler, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's grandfather, Peter Maivia, who was a Samoan American wrestler himself? Oh, well, wow. that's great. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Cool. Cool. Bond decides to break into the safe that he finds in Osada Chemical. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing he happens to have a safe cracker in his pocket. Of course, who doesn't carry one of those around? It's cool to see how this has changed in two movies. 
Remember how big that safecracker thing was in Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Yeah, but Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it was huge, but it was also a photocopier, and those at that time were not that small. So I'm going to yeah. let that slide. Okay, and Bond good, has good one of these in his pocket because he knows he might be trying to break into this guy's safe. So it's all logical. <laughs> it's just like how Bond has the ninja suit later when they go into the volcano. Yeah, it's all planning. It's all planning. He's well-trained. He knows what he needs. And has Q, exactly what he needs. <laughs> when he needs it. It's part of being a good spy. Ah. And he isn't showing good spy stuff when he falls down that slide and into the chair when he's chasing after Aki. I mean, where have we seen that before? Well, th yeah. He's not looking good, like a good spy. And even Tanaka, which is the interesting part here, tells Bonson, hey, Bonson, he, he was surprised that it was so easy to lure Bond into his trap. So how good is Bond? I mean, come on. <sighs> predictable. Give him a pretty woman and he's going to chase after her. Yeah. I mean, to the point of detriment, his own detriment. Yep. But in this case, it turned out okay. <laughs> yep. She was on the good side. Bond and Tiger get on Tiger's private train. Tiger comments how he assumes M has something similar to get around in London safely without being seen. We've seen trains in many spy movies, and usually there is a fight on board, and sometimes outside of the train. From Russia with Love and Mission Impossible are examples of this. In You Only Live Twice, this is a private train that is used as a mobile office. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool train scenes in lots of movies, including The 39 Steps, which was the first spy movie in 1935. This is nice. It's beautiful. And the train here, it, it's, it is gorgeous. And it's reminiscent, first, of the James West and Artemis Gordon train on the popular TV show The Wild Wild West. They had a private train car, as did come to think of it, Alex Trevelyan in Goldeneye as well. So lots of this kind of thing going on. Here we are reminded that Bond is a learned man who knows his customs. When drinking sake, he states that the temperature should be served at 98.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Who didn't know that? <laughs> yeah, but he called it sake with a hard A. Yeah. Oops. Tiger used a soft A. So I thought that was pretty funny to me. Yeah, yeah. He knows a lot of stuff, though, Bond. He, he, he does. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> All right, next we get into a thing with a computer, so I, I had to dive into this a little bit. Of course. We have the scene where we see the operators working on a computer, and you've got the camera following and tracking Bond's movements. And this thing cracked me up totally. It looks like a glorified adding machine, with a small TV screen next to it. Well, it turns out that's pretty true with what this thing was. I love looking at old computer stuff. My first foray into programming was in the language Fortran on punch cards in 1980. So I needed to dive into this a little bit more. This was technology that was from 17 years before I first started doing punch cards. So in researching this computer, it looks for me that the part on the left of it, the part without the little screen, is the keyboard for a Burroughs E2100 direct accounting computer. Uh, yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. I, that's what well, I was thinking. <laughs> most people would know that. Right? <laughs> so Burroughs started as an adding machine company, so the keyboard design in this thing really makes sense. And it's amazing to see how computers have evolved since then. Anyway, the screen monitor would have been added just for effect. This computer would have not been able to be used as a monitor for a camera, nor would that keyboard have been controlling the camera. 
it was more like representing the technology rather than using the existing technology at the time, right? I mean, it seemed well, to be... That, that's kind of what it's doing. I mean, because this technology would not have been used to do what they did with it. Yeah. The E2100 existed, but it was for accounting and lighter computing needs. Yeah, yeah. So I don't they're... know if there were monitoring systems that could have done what we saw here. And I'm basing my assumption that this was the Burroughs E2100 based on a YouTube video that I saw. Yeah, I'm sure it was, link, Tom. I'll put a link to his show notes on that because I'm sure you all want to click on it. Because yeah. um, I, <laughs> I want to know more about the E2100 for sure. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I, I spent a lot of time looking through this, trying to find out what that computer was. And I'm pretty sure I've got that right. Okay. Um, and Burroughs is now called Unisys. And just kind of to close that up. So if you're looking for Burroughs and it comes yeah. up Unisys, you now know why. Yeah. Many people will be looking that up, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Uh. Asata asks what happened to the previous managing director, Williamson. When James Bond tells him how Williamson dies, Asato says, ah, so how shocking. I like the callback to the pre-title sequence in Goldfinger. Shocking, positively shocking. Yeah, and Goldfinger it was great line because the guy gets electrocuted in the bathtub. So shocking is perfect. That's mm. a perfect line for that. So there are a couple of comments about smoking in this movie. And the first one comes up in this scene when Bond's talking to Asado. And Asado says he should give up smoking. Now maybe that line was only there to get to the line about liking a healthy chest. Yes. But smoking was very common <laughs> with the Japanese people at this time. So it doesn't seem to be culturally accurate to me. My understanding, based on my research, is that back in 1966, up to 83% of all Japanese men smoked. Now, that's dropped dramatically since to just under 30%. But back in 1966, it was 83% of the men smoked. So we also have to remember that Ian Fleming smoked, which is why Bond smoked. So the Bond character over the years has changed in the films concerning smoking. Connery and Lazenby's Bond smoked cigarettes. Roger Moore's moved to cigars. Dalton brought back cigarettes. And Brosnan and Craig don't smoke in the Bond movies. However, Roger did smoke a lot of cigarettes in The Saint. Always. Well, actually, I'm going to stop you there. In, in Die Another Day from 2002, we do see Bond smoking a cigar as Jinx emerges from the ocean. Maybe this was a highlight to Havana and Cuban cigars. Because the Cuban cigar is later seen in the mouth of Raoul, an intelligence operative that Bond meets in the same film. True, true. Oh, good true. point, good point. That's and so you point. got all these statistics that Tom uh, highlighted here with the smoking statistics and everything. And then you have the concept of they wrote the scene for the healthy chest line. That's really what they did. <laughs> I mean, so Asada's definitely setting up the line for the healthy chest for the writers because that's what they wanted to do. He also sees that Bond's carrying a weapon because he's got the x-ray machine on him constantly. And so not wanting to refer to the gun he sees, but wanting to let Bond squirm a little bit, maybe. He says, you are taking a risk right now. Then he throws in the cigarette line. So it's good. Well, <laughs> if they tried to do that today, the movie rating industry added smoking to its rating criteria. So it's possible they wouldn't have been able to get a PG-13 on this yeah. in the U.S., they may be doing ours based on the amount of smoking that gets done in the movie. Yeah, so this was 67, though, Dan. And again, if they were trying to be culturally accurate, 83% of the men smoked. No, they wrote it for the line. <laughs> they didn't give two shits about the percentages. <laughs> they wrote the scene for the chest line. 
Period. Ah, that's it. But, the, but there's another comment later about Bond smoking too much. Yeah. The yeah. tiger uses. Yeah. And right. there's no chest line associated with yeah. it. The Tanaka cigarette line is there. So Tanaka can say, the cigarette can save your life because it shoots a propelled bullet and can be used as a weapon. So there you go. The scene where Bond and Aki are escaping henchmen from Asato Chemicals has a nice callback to Goldfinger. After Aki tells Tiger, arrange for usual reception, please, a helicopter picks up their car with a magnet, like the Lincoln at the metal scrapyard in Goldfinger. But this time, the Endies are dropping the ocean instead of a pressing engagement. <laughs> yeah, the thing that gets me <laughs> about this whole setup of this scene is that when Bond is escaping from Osato's headquarters and Aki says, get in the car, and the henchmen are firing automatic weapons at Bond, as soon as Bond jumps into the car, the pursuit car then proceeds to chase them. Hey, why not stop and riddle them with bullets right then and there and kill them both? I mean, you had them there. You have easy access to shoot their heads and upper bodies if they're in a convertible. Like I said, never a good idea. But no, they're willing to chase them and shoot hanging out of the windows of the pursuit vehicle. Ah, yeah, there's a good idea. <laughs> I do like the drop in the ocean line and the concept, though. The helicopter, again, would have to be at the ready at all times and hopefully arrives before one of those bullets hits Aki or Bond in a convertible. <sighs> the well-equipped DB5 is a better idea. <laughs> so then Bond tells Tiger to have M send over little Nelly and Q, or its its father, he said. Which got me thinking again. Today, the fastest flight from London to Tokyo is 12 and a half hours. How long was it back then before Q actually was able to get there? Long. According to Graham Thomas's book, The Definitive Story of You Only Live Twice, when Fleming made his first trip to Japan, it took 26 hours and had at least three stops. <laughs> and that was in 1959. I haven't been able to find anything that tells me Back in 1966 or 67, when they went to film this movie, how long that would have been. It does appear to me, though, that the scene with Little Nelly is at least the next day, if not further along than that. Yeah. When they were filming the scene with Little Nelly, which is really a cool device, and the cool, and it's a, it's a neat scene. It's a cool scene. And it was being attacked by the other helicopters, as we saw in the movie. The aviation cinematographer, John Jordan, who used to hang from a helicopter landing struts to get great shots for films, had a foot almost completely severed by the helicopter blade when the two helicopters were pursuing Little Nelly. It was surgically reattached, but it was never right and was eventually removed. And he died, actually tragically, filming Catch-22, falling out of a plane 2,000 feet into the Pacific because of the bad footing, literally. So... Tough time filming that scene. And now the James Bond movie encyclopedia by Stephen J. Rubin and also our spy movie database on spymovienavigator.com has more details on this accident if you want to find out more. Just look up Johnny Jordan. Yeah. Okay, Bond gets into a fight at the docks. Bond, played by Connery, shoots a henchman on the stairs who has something non-gun-like in his hand. He has no quip at this point. However, I can't watch this without thinking of the movie the Untouchables, where Connery says, isn't that just like a wop brings a knife to a gunfight? <laughs> Connery doesn't shoot him in The Untouchables, but you wonder if that scene in You Only Live Twice influenced the writing of The Untouchables. I'm always amazed at how often those pursuing Bond or those who want to incapacitate him or kill him are so 
ill-equipped with weapons <laughs> or how poor they are at firing them if they do have weapons because they can never hit their target. <sighs> it's frustrating to watch this kind of stuff and think, okay, Bond's got guns. These guys have billy clubs, whatever. Or even when they've got a gun, Blofeld points a gun at Bond, shoots Asado who's standing next to him, and then doesn't go back and shoot Bond. Yeah, he had something special for him. It's the megalomaniac thing. Yeah, Just shoot him. They've got a better way of killing him, better, more dramatic. Ooh, it's going to be... Just kill him. I love this scene, especially the rooftop fight whereby the camera pans out to the sounds of the reprised theme song. It shows the audience the scale of the operation in which Bond finds himself. Yeah, yeah but Bond goes upstairs. Just surround the building. He's not going to get away. Why <laughs> come with all these guns? Just wait him out. <laughs> Never understand these guys. No, it's yeah, hard well, to. Maybe they, maybe they did that so they could then do this big arty rooftop fight with music and yeah maybe they had that in mind no doesn't he like take out six guys or seven guys or whatever yeah yeah because none of them have a good weapon Mm. no (laughs) 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 all right so next helga brandt opens this drawer she's got bond in this room she opens this drawer that has some metal tools in it Mm. and she takes out a plastic surgeon's metal knife the dermatome now, this is a bit frightening, as most people don't know uh, how a dermatome is used, although she says it's to slice skin. <laughs> that said, it is a lot lower key than when Jeremy Irons' character, Elliot, unveils his implements in the movie Dead Ringers. I love the glint of the light off of the blade when she first pulls it out. That's really a nice cinematographic touch. But I also wonder why she flipped over to the good side so quickly and cut Bond loose, or so it seems. You had him there, tied up. And you have a blade in your hand, a sharp scalpel blade, (laughs) a dermatome. You can easily kill him, but no, no. Let's put him in a plane, trap his hands, and parachute out so he can crash and die. That's a better plan. (laughs) Okay. Okay. These, These guys never learn. No, no. All right, when we see little Nelly, we talked about it a little bit before, Tiger mocks it and calls it a toy helicopter. In real life, it's an auto gyro. This is a real thing. It was designed and built by former RAF wing commander, Kenneth H. Wallace. Wallace also flew it in the movies. This is a more sophisticated auto gyro than the one we saw briefly in the 39 Steps that we mentioned a while ago, the first spy movie back in 1935 that was chasing Hanny. One thing way advanced from what ends up as a reality years later is how the spaceship lands inside the volcano rocket base. Now, we all know the volcano Ken Adams set was fabulous. It cost a million dollars. Amazing. Yeah, it cost a million dollars to build in 1967. That's a lot of money. That's not how NASA or Russia was planning to do spacecraft reentry when this movie was created. It wasn't until the space shuttle in 1981 that reusable flights from orbit really occurred. There are a few companies, most notably now SpaceX and Blue Origin, that have successfully recovered parts of rockets for reuse, like the first stage rocket and so on. The SpaceX rocket's first stage flies back to its target and returns and looks somewhat similar to what we see in this scene in You Only Live Twice without the visible cables, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Although, (laughs) 
That's recovering the rockets. The astronauts will still splash down. You can see how this looks today if you look at the video in our show notes on the Falcon 9. This whole concept is odd to be sure. Number one, that an independent terror organization like Spectre has the resources both technically and monetarily to have much more sophisticated technology than huge countries like the Soviet Union and the United States. And two, when you see the rocket land in the volcano or is about to take off from the volcano, there is no way it's large enough to capture and swallow up a space capsule. But willing suspension of disbelief must be activated often in Bond movies. So switch it on. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the Blofeld headquarters in the volcano was supposed to be the Shinmoadaki volcano, a real volcano. It's assumed it is a dormant volcano as opposed to an extinct or active volcano. But the real volcano has erupted in recent times. 1959, 1991, 2008, 2009, 2011, 2017, 2018, and 2020. Not exactly dormant. That could have really ruined Blofeld's plants. Yeah. I love how Bond films use the element of swallowing vehicles throughout the films. We see it in The Spy Who Loved Me with the Liparus. Of course, in You Only Live Twice with the Rockets. In Tomorrow Never Dies, the CVAC drill creates a hole in the side of the HMS Devonshire and the ocean swallows it. It's as though the villains want to consume everything in their path. (laughs) Okay, then Tiger shows Bond the ninja training school. And although ninjas have been in movies starting back in the silent movie days, first was probably something called Jiraiya Gogetsu Monogatari, Many movies, including Ninjas, but You Only Live Twice was one of the first mainstream movies to feature them that was released outside of Japan. Mm. In Fromersha with Love, the sequence after Kronstein and Kleb leave Blofeld's office has Kleb walking with Morzini to meet Red Grant. That training facility is similar to this without the Ninjas. The book Fromersha with Love was published in 1957, so it's unlikely the two scenes were related, but there is some similarity, at least with what we see in these two movies. Tiger then has a scene with Bond that is very reminiscent of the Q branch sequences in other Bond films. Tiger shows James Bond something he called a rocket gun. I thought that it was just a fictitious prop, but nope, that was a real gun at the time with his odd-looking microjet, what would normally be called a bullet. But this is where the magic and the problem with the gun was. The microjet accelerates after it leaves the gun. It's cool to watch because you can see the microjet kick in on the videos as the bullet accelerates. However, they couldn't manufacture a consistent burn rate on the microjet and there was no rifling in the barrel because the acceleration happens after the round leaves the barrel. So it was just moving too slow to spin consistently by rifling. This made the microjet fairly inaccurate, and judging how far you could shoot it, it was tough with the inconsistent burn times. If you go to guns.com and search gyrojet, you can see the real thing. These were manufactured for a few years, the patent was in 1965, but were a commercial failure. Real rocket guns by gyrojet were manufactured for a few years around the release of You Only Live Twice. You can learn more about these from an article on guns.com called 1960s Cool, the rarely seen gyrojet semi-auto rocket pistol. And I'll put a link to that in our show notes. Now there's an even cooler video that shows the pistol and the rifle variant of this gun being fired. 
Testing gyrojet rocket guns. Why were they a commercial failure? And again, we'll put that in the show notes. This gun is also seen in the Matt Helm movie Murderer's Row, which came out a year before You Only Live Twice. Then we get another smoking comment, this time from Tiger. <laughs> he makes a crack about Bond smoking too much as he shows him the cigarette that shoots out that exploding low. Yeah, we mentioned this a little earlier. Again, the crack seems out of place in Japanese culture at the time when smoking was prevalent among men. Remember, Tiger says, it could save your life, this cigarette. <laughs> that line saves the scene. <laughs> That's... That's it. Yeah, but the cigarette comes in very handy for Bond later. It it does. Reminds me of the wrist uh, weapon in Moonraker, uh, shooting the dart. <laughs> it's like, hey, yes. you got to have these things somewhere. That's good. Yes. Bond gets fake married to Kissy. You do get to see part of the wedding ceremony itself. This was another scene exposing us to Japanese culture, and it was really cool because the Japanese wedding is a little bit different than what we see here in North America, at least. Mm-hmm. Now, according to Graham Thomas in that book that we referred to earlier, this wedding was done very authentically, but the marriage wasn't real. I mean, it was a sham to make it look like they got married, much like they did the fake burial at sea at the beginning of the movie, yeah. trying to make people think one thing when that's not the reality. Now, we did see Bond get married in the next movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but remember that on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the novel came out before You Only Live Twice. Well, we didn't see Bond get married in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The scene actually starts at the reception after the ceremony. But James and Tracy did get married in that movie, unlike Bond and Kissy, who got fake married in this one. As we've mentioned in past podcasts, it's a bit unusual to see a spy get married in a spy movie. There are some, but it's not often that you see this so you have this fake wedding here the real marriage in honor Majesty's secret service felix and Della get married in license to kill mission impossible 3 has ethan and julia get married so you do see some spies getting married but not often it probably has something to do with the nature of the job yeah you're not going to be around no. too often for your spouse <laughs> yeah. i'll be honest i think james bond's japanese disguise is one of the lesser things <laughs> i like about the film it's a terrible <laughs> hairpiece and the eye makeup piece, do we really believe that he looks Japanese? No. This, this makeover almost ruined the movie for me. It was so bad. Mm. And I was just so turned off with it. But there's a lot of this movie I really like. But this really yeah. turned me off how they did that. Yeah. He didn't look Japanese. And I don't know who they were trying to fool. I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone watching. I, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Plus, he's, what, 6'2 six, six in real life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was hunching down, too. You could see him hunching down, you know, trying yes. to look shorter. Okay. <laughs> All right. So after the wedding, they go to Kissy's place. And he's trying to seduce Kissy. And he says to her, but we must keep up appearances. We're on our honeymoon. Mm. <laughs> and her response is, no honeymoon. This is business. And it got me thinking. Did Mario Puzo use this line to help him create the wonderful line from the movie from 1969, The Godfather? It also appears in the 1972 movie. You know the line. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Yeah, well, this reminds me of perhaps my favorite Bond villain, Fran Sanchez, played by Robert Davi, of course, in the 1989 Bond film License to Kill, when they're about to feed Felix Leiter to the sharks. I want you to know it's nothing personal. It's purely business. <laughs> ah, I love Robert Davi in that role. So it comes back in another Bond movie. There you yeah, go. So 
And I, I've got to believe that all three of them were connected to this line in You Only Live Twice. And she actually says it twice in this movie. So I think it's a fairly important line. And it's one that most people associate with the Godfather version. Yet this preceded it. Bond and Kissy go to the cave that had that phosgene gas. This gas was actually used in World War I by the Germans, and they injured more than 1,000 British soldiers, and 12 of them died. It was responsible for 85% of the chemical weapons fatalities in World War I. Now, we've looked, and we've not been able to find anything other than documentaries on World War I in the movie world that actually mention phosgene gas. This is the only movie that really covers it. So it's kind of an interesting twist that they would pull this gas out as the villain in the cave. Yeah, you, you know, but again, the, the writers, Eon writers, they're cleverly, they cleverly work this gas into this movie, oh, yeah, and it, it was a real gas. And that's what I love about Ian Productions and their writers. They do look for events and things from the real world to make their movies more topical and more realistic in a sense. So I love that they do that, and it's great. So I love that it's in there. Yeah, I do, I do too. In Blofeld's lair, one of his possessions is a Madonna of Hans Holbein oil painting by Hans Holbein the Younger. In real life, this painting sold at auction in 2011 for $70 million. The painting in the movie is very dark and not as nearly as colorful as the original, especially around Madonna's head. It had hung in the Darmstadt until 2003, although there was a copy of it made in 1630. But I'm not sure why Blofeld would have it. It's not a stolen painting. It's a pl- painting where we know where it was at the time this movie was done. So I'm not sure why Blofeld would have it. Yeah, who knows? But it's, again, much like the Duke of Wellington portrait that was brought into Dr. No, which was really stolen from the National Gallery in London a couple of years before the filming of Dr. No, and it was still missing at the time. Here in You Only Live Twice, they bring in another real art object as a background piece again. And it's just good writing and good prop work. I, I like that kind of stuff. I think it's yeah, good. There were, there were a couple of other pieces of art on the wall that I couldn't identify. I'm sure someone out there more adept at art than I am could identify them. So if you do know what other art was on the wall, please leave us a message on our website, spymovienavigator.com or on Facebook. Also in this movie, there's a minor role of a character in Houston who communicated radar information to Washington. That character was portrayed by a guy named David Healy. He's also the guy with the glasses in Diamonds Are Forever who talks to Willard White, telling him the position of the satellite, Mm. and who tells Willard White, everything's on track, we're all okay. He also had an extremely similar role without the glasses in the episode called The Island on the TV show called The Baron. That episode also had a henchman in it played by Terry Mountain, who we recently interviewed in the podcast. So it's just kind of a little fun. This guy's had three roles that I've seen him in, and all have been almost the same character. All right. The attack on the volcano lair is classic, with ninjas, Bond, Tanaka, Kissy, Blofeld, and his army of men all over the place. The set, of course, is magnificent, Ken Adam. We know that everything is going to blow up at the end, usually started by Bond, but this time initiated by Blofeld as he escapes, as he sets in motion the self-destruct mechanism that will blow up the volcano base. Wow. Now, part of that plan is that the explosion will get the lava flowing and add to the destruction of people and property and just obliterate his lair and any evidence of it. They do, in fact, show lava flowing in one of the shots. There have been articles written suggesting an explosion 
would more than likely not get the lava flowing. Ah, details, details. Hey, this is Bond. But anyway, it's a nice wrap-up for the movie and the kind of attack on the villain's lair that we come to expect. All right, in general, I like this movie. I'm a Sean Connery fan, and so there's something I like about all of his Bond movies. But this one is entertaining. The sets by Ken Adam, spectacular. The introduction of Japan and its culture to many viewers at the time, a great idea. And overall, a good Bond outing, even though the fundamental concept of capturing the space capsule in space in 1967 was a bit far-fetched. But hey, this is Bond. Yeah, now this is the one Sean Connery movie that I'm not likely to pull off the shelf very often. I like the touches of reality and the Japanese culture it brings in, but that whole Bond-O-San thing they did with trying to make him look Japanese almost ruins this movie for me. See, I'm going to be controversial here. I prefer this massively <laughs> over Thunderbolt. Now, I know you guys love Thunderbolt, which is my least favorite Connery film. Wow. Yeah, that's a big statement. <laughs> you Only Live Twice is a spectacle Bond Big sets, exotic locations, larger-than-life villain, my favourite Blofeld. I could imagine watching this back in the 1960s, caught up in the wonder of the Orient. Pure Bond, pure escapism. Yeah, yeah, it was a heck of a movie for 1967. As a tangent to the sumo wrestling conversation we just had, sumo wrestling can save lives. Cubby Broccoli, Harry Saltzman, and I believe it was Ken Adam were scheduled to leave Japan when they were filming You Only Live Twice. And they decided to delay their flight and stay for a wrestling match that they'd been wanting to go to. So they did that. They postponed the flight. They got on a different flight. The flight they were supposed to be on crashed. And everyone aboard was killed. So Harry Saltzman, Cubby Broccoli, and Ken Adam, by going to the sumo wrestling match, saved their lives. That's a fact really kind of scary stuff and that yeah. flight it was a british airways 9-11 flight all right all in all a good movie with some interesting connections and some interesting scenes that we've taken a look at well that's a wrap as we've cracked the code of the james bond movie you only live twice please tell your friends about our show and give us a five-star rating on the app you're listening on right now follow us on twitter facebook and instagram too thanks for listening we appreciate it